Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Mike, have you ever encountered a toxic person at work or on a project? You know, like somebody who shamed or bullied people in front of everybody else or humiliated you or you watched them scream at other people in a way they shouldn't have at work? Sadly, Tothi, I have to say yes to that. Um, certainly not in uh, places where I've worked directly, but, but clients, um, places that I've been, projects that I've been on. Uh, there seems like there's a never-ending um, string of people that are arrested at middle school behavior. <laughs> well said, Mike. Um, and unfortunately, I have to say I've also worked in these environments. One in particular yeah. that I was actually part of, there was a lot of yelling in that environment um, at people. Luckily, rarely directed at me. I was very fortunate <laughs> in that sense. But um, a lot of clients, too, in my work with physician practices for many years, uh, I saw a lot of behavior, bad behavior in the clinic area. I can remember one practice in particular, the staff used to say that one of the physicians, when he hit his boiling point, he would just throw charts down the hall, which, of course, I'm dating myself because that was when we had paper charts, but that was just not good. And unfortunately, I don't think our experiences are all that unique, whether it's healthcare or other industries. I mean, this is fairly common, um, and it's it's pretty obvious to folks that toxic environments, toxic people, uh, impact our well emotionally well emotional well being. But our guest today is going to point out that there are other costs to having somebody toxic on the team, and this is why you want to address that issue, patient safety and financial, those are some of the things that he talks about. Well, I'm excited for this, Tothi, because you spoke with organizational development leader and author, Dr. Mitchell Cousy, who's an expert in this area and wrote a new book about it. He did. And his evidence-based approach um, to dealing with this issue is something our listeners are really going to appreciate. Um, he's got, he cites a lot of study data and he's run some studies himself with a colleague. Uh, and I found Dr. Cousy to be really passionate about the topic and he has loads of very specific strategies and action steps, which he'll talk about in the interview that physician leaders can use to solve these issues. This definitely sounds like someone that you want to uh, sit next to at the cocktail party, Tothi. What what great uh, stories he must have. <laughs> exactly. But before we get to those, and I, and I want to move right into it, we still have to do word of the show. What do you have for us today? Oh, uh, well, Mike, I chose what Grammarly says is one of the 10 most beautiful words in the English language. I went for beauty today. I finished my silly words. Remember when I had that phase? And now I'm in the beauty words. The word of the show is aurora, the dawn in the early morning. You know, it's summer here in the desert of Tucson, and I have been enjoying awaking each morning into the aurora because you have to get up that early before the searing heat makes us all melt and turns what is typically a fine city into Hades. I mean, it has been consistently over 105, Mike, for like 10 days in a row. (laughs) Ooh, brutal. I've seen the weather map. I, I, I feel for you, uh, Tothi. Yeah. Well, try to stay cool. And now let's move on with your conversation with Dr. Mitchell Cousy. Our 
Our conversation today is about toxic people in the workplace and what leaders can do about it. And joining us for the discussion is Mitchell Cousy, PhD, a professor in the Graduate School of Leadership and Change at Antioch University and an international consultant to leadership. Dr. Cousy, I think many of our listeners are intrigued by this topic and quite possibly because they have someone disruptive or toxic in their healthcare organization. So we're really glad you've joined us to sort through the issue. Welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you so much, Cheryl. So let me tell you all a bit about Dr. Cousy. He's a Fulbright scholar in international organizational development, and he was previously head of leadership development at American Express Financial Advisors. Uh, and he also served as director of organizational development for health partners in Minneapolis. Uh, Dr. Cousy's new book, Why I Don't Work Here Anymore, provides uh, a whole variety of testimony and stories uh, to the egregious impact that toxic people have on an organization's finances and the personal well-being of its employees, and I imagine in healthcare, patient safety, and we're going to talk about that. Um, the book is filled with all kinds of evidence-based studies, and it includes templates and assessment inventories that help leaders know what to do about toxic people and actually how to do it. And in fact, I was, before we started recording, I was saying to Dr. Cousy that his article, which was in the, is in the September, October um, issue of the AAPL's uh, PLJ, the Physician Leadership Journal, is like that. It's, you know, it's a how-to. There's a lot of great action steps you'll find. I hope you'll check that out. The article is called Six Simple Ways to Build Teams of Everyday Civility. I'm sure He'll be, uh, Dr. Cousy will be sharing some of those tips, but we'll also put a link to the article in the show notes. So, um, Dr. Cousy, let's start by you kind of laying out the definition. What is a toxic person in the workplace? <laughs> That's a great question, Cheryl. First of all, let's start with uh, what a toxic person is not. Toxic person is not necessarily some, someone just having a bad day. We've all had bad days. When I'm um, teaching individuals about this and working with organizations as an organizational psychologist, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh my gosh, am I toxic? Well, the good news is, if you ask yourself that question, the research study that I had done with my colleague, Dr. Elizabeth Holloway, indicated that uh, most toxic individuals are clueless about the behavior. So if you're asking the question, that means you have some clues and you're likely not to be toxic. Uh -huh. So what is a toxic individual? It's, first of all, an individual that has a pattern of counterproductive work behavior. So it, it's something that happens pretty regularly. And the counterproductive work behaviors can affect any one, two, or three of these things. Our own personal well-being, team performance, and organizational productivity. So subsequently, um, one of the things to look for is um, the results of toxic individuals and they impact one, two, or three of these areas, and they demonstrate behaviors that are targeted, harmful, and repeated. So that's the nuts and bolts of a toxic individual. Well, and I, I, um, I've worked with some of these folks over the course of my career, and I know that the, the way that they make you feel is un very unsettling. I mean, what, mm -hmm. what does that do to a team? You mentioned team performance and productivity. When they have an outburst or there's a, yeah, I worked for somebody who yelled a lot and yeah. um, that was hard for people. Do you see that in, in your work? Absolutely. And in fact, not only my research studies, but other research studies 
such as studies done by Pearson, Porath, et cetera, have found that indeed um, the results of these toxic individuals is that others on the team have less commitment to the organization. That's one, one impact. Um, the less commitment, they um, are likely to reduce their work effort. And interestingly, something that I found personally in, in um, coaching leaders about this is that often um, individuals who are the targets of these toxic behaviors will figure out a way around that individual. So let's pretend that the target person starts at eight in the morning. I've heard uh, cases where um, someone says, well, I'm gonna start at four in the morning, so I only have two hours with that individual. Mm -hmm. So it, in, it, it impacts our personal well-being, but it impacts the organizational effectiveness as well. For sure, and uh, I saw that a lot of going, going around the person or have trying to do things through others that could have been done more directly with this person and more efficiently, but um, people didn't want to deal with the person. It was that's right, it was too exactly, Cheryl. Stressful. So, all right. Well, I know that your research indicates that there are a lot of these people out there. You did a study of what was it, four hundred leaders? Four hundred leaders, and actually. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Holloway and I found that about 94% of individuals stated they have worked with a toxic person. So that's, that's a really incredible statistic. In fact, I can't go to a cocktail party and tell people what I do without their now pulling me aside. Well, let me tell you this story. And I, I want to say to myself, my thought bubble is, I know the story. Yeah, you've heard it all. <laughs> I've heard it. Yes. Yeah. Well, would you say that healthcare, I mean, you've worked in financial services, you've worked in healthcare, you've done coaching, so I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people in different industries. Is healthcare, hospitals, health systems more prone to, to attracting toxic individuals, or is it sort of spread across the board in terms of these folks and where they- I don't know live? if it's, um, I don't have the research data to say that hospitals and healthcare systems um, are more prone to this. However, what I can say, just personally in talking with healthcare individuals, as well as looking at the research that, out, that is out there, there is greater impact in healthcare. For example, um, in one study that was done, 70 to 80% of the errors were related the dysfunctional interpersonal behaviors. Wow. In another study done by Sofield and Salman found that 51% of respondents reported an increase in patient errors as a result of verbal abuse. People will say to me, well, how can that be? I've got, I, I, I have to demand perfectionism. And interestingly, I was doing a keynote address several years ago to a non-healthcare group. Mm -hmm. And I still report these statistics to a non-healthcare audience because we're all impacted by healthcare. Mm -hmm. And a gentleman raised his hand and said, Mitch, um, just last night, my wife who's a nurse reported to me that she um, didn't agree with the medication order. And rather than go to the intimidating physician, she went to three to four other individuals to interpret the order. In fact, the Institute for Safe Medication Practices has done a research study on this, and they found that 75% reported that they would go to um, a colleague to in interpret an order rather than an intimidating physician. Well, it gets even more interesting, Cheryl. And then 
a woman raised her hand and said, Mitch, I'm a surgeon. I have to demand perfectionism in the operating room suite. And therefore, that means I have to be intimidating to get this perfectionism. And then she issued a question to me and she said, well, she called me doctor, <laughs> Dr. Kuzi. I knew I was in trouble then. She said, Dr. Kuzi, would you want to go to a surgeon who isn't perfect? So I'm dying up there on the podium thinking, how am I going to respond? And I responded from what I know. And I said, doctor, no one is perfect. And I want to go to a surgeon. If they are about to make a mistake, someone feels comfortable enough to call him on that error. There was utter silence in the room. So subsequently, it becomes a systems issue yes. by understanding the system that, uh, that underlies the fact that why people don't speak up when there is an impending potential medical error. Well, let, let's talk about that. What do we do about that? You, you can't, I mean, you, you talked about the, the husband that stood up and said his wife went around the physician. That, that may not have been such an egregious problem, but especially in the operating room and things, what, what can we do to get these toxic people to stop misbehaving so that people will step up? Exactly. First of all, um, healthcare is data driven. So the first thing I do is to help the system understand why this is so important. It's not first, I've got to give this surgeon feedback. That's not going to work. In fact, our research found that the number one strategy that was most unsuccessful is a feedback alone. So what you have to do is understand the system that allows people to get away with bad behavior. But rather than take a punitive approach, what I do with my clients is I help them understand the data. For example, 30.7% of nurses reported someone that they knew who quit because of disruptive, pardon me, disrupt, disruptive physician behavior. Mm -hmm. What I also want to do is I don't want to victimize physicians. It could be a disruptive nurse. It could be a disruptive leader. It's not only physicians. So I don't want to demonize them because they do so much good. Yeah, that's um, so, so the first thing is to, to present the data. Um, uh, are you aware, for example, in talking with a group of physicians that um, a whopping 67% agreed that disruptive behaviors were linked to adverse effects? Medication errors, 71% said medication errors were a result of these disruptive, intimidating behaviors. So first of all, providing the system, the data, that allows us to understand what's going on. The second piece of what I do is I bring teams together and help them develop a professional compact. Once they understand these data, I have them engaged in designing this compact of the behaviors they would like to see and those that they would not like to witness. That's the second piece. And the third is to get the leadership in an organization to agree, agree on the consequences of these behaviors. So the first, it's the data-driven education. Mm -hmm. The second is bringing the team together to talk about what they want to see and what do they not want to see in terms of behaviors. And the, and the third piece is a systems perspective of understanding the consequences. And this is probably one of the hardest things to do because you need to have consequences for bad behavior. I have an article that came out recently that talks about zero tolerance. And 
people misconstrue zero tolerance. It doesn't mean you do this and you're out. Part of the consequences are what I call progressive discipline. So the first time this occurs, this is what's going to happen. The second time this, and you don't, mm. you don't jump at these to an individual um, without explaining this is what is going to happen. So not when the incident occurs, but you need to educate the entire group that we have a four-step discipline process, et cetera. And it's not just the discipline process. You have to agree on the consequences. And I can tell you right now, Cheryl, that unless there are consequences, there's likely not going to be behavior change. It's sort of like a kid having a tantrum in a grocery store because she wants a lollipop. And the parent gives the kid a lollipop yep. <laughs> to quiet them. Well, you know what? You just taught them something. It's yep. the Next time thing. I know what exactly. to do and to get my lollipop. <laughs> I'm, very, I'm very enthusiastic about this subject, so feel free to interrupt me. Yeah, no, I mean, this is, <laughs> this is really good stuff because um, these are tangible things leaders can do. I mean, bringing uh, the data first is, is critical. And so to that point, your article in the PLJ, are some of these data points in there so folks can... Absolutely. In fact, I'm looking at the article Great. now. 57.6% um, of pediatrics nurses reported less um, critical thinking as a result of a disruptive professional. Um, 75 Institute for Safe Medication Practices, 75% reported going to a colleague to interpret the order rather than someone else. So um, you're, it, so this uh, this piece, which again we'll put the link in the show notes, is great for leaders to uh, take a read and distribute to their team, so that as they look at that data and decide how they're going to communicate it, then pull folks together to come up with this professional yeah. compact. I love that idea because it's like yeah. like a rights and responsibilities of it, how do we think what's good behavior, what isn't, and then what are the consequences and how do that's we? That's right. Them. I liken it to awareness. These data provide awareness. And I'm telling you, when I share these data, people are shocked. They're shocked at the high incident and the impact in healthcare. That it has. So subsequently, yeah. at times many people think that the errors that are going on in healthcare result of incompetence. And I'm not going to say that does not happen. However, they're shocked to see how intimidating, shameful, kinds of behaviors one-on-one -on -one or in public cause individuals to not speak what's right to speak. So patient safety, so this is a critical impact area. Exactly. We talked about well-being a little bit. What about financial? You mentioned in your book that there's actually a financial impact that these uh, belittling, shaming uh, employees can, can have. That's right. Um, interestingly, this financial impact is so important. I have a whole chapter in my book, Why I Don't Work Here Anymore, about this. And um, in any organization, including healthcare, the financial impact is, is critical. And I developed an algorithm that is based on such factors as um, the individuals who leave organizations in general. Um, and the replacement costs. So someone at an entry level, the replacement cost is 30 per, to 50% of their salary, a mid-level 150%, and a highly specialized, such as a physician, um, et cetera, or a high-level leader is three to 400% of their salary to replace them. That's just one part of the algorithm. 
So subsequently, I've developed this algorithm where people can determine the cost in their own organizations. To save time and to abbreviate this process in general, it can be up to about 6% of total compensation costs in the organization. So Cheryl, if you figure that a medium-sized organization is spending $100 million on um, compensation, well, 6% of $100 million is $6 million. And that's the conservative effort uh, estimate, not including um, legal costs for malpractice, et cetera. I didn't even figure that. I went as conservative as possible. So about 6% of your total compensation costs are spent dealing with these kinds of behaviors. So subsequently, you know, if I said to an organization as a consultant, and an organizational psychologist, which I am. And if I said, you know, if you hire me um, and your compensation costs are 100 million, I can save you $6 million a year. They're going to jump on that. Yeah. So those two uh, data points, first, patient safety. Second, financial costs are the drivers that help organizations understand, I got to do something about this. I can't let people get away with bad behavior. Yeah, there's a lot of risk if they don't act. I mean, as you've outlined here. And so those two patient safety financial costs, really uh, things that physicians and clinicians are going to focus on leadership, um, executive leadership in particular. What about employees that are toxic or, you know, supervising supervisors in the billing office or in the surgery scheduling department or in hospital administration? How can leaders handle those folks and address the issues at, you know, patient safety may not be the driver for them nor financial costs. So what can they do? Well, the first thing is that there needs to be the system in the organization. So the organization supports leaders and any employee who are subjected to toxic behaviors as a route for them to do something about it. And those need to be pronounced. So let's pretend that that is in place. Then the second and the most important piece is then how do I give feedback to an individual who is toxic. And one of the things that I have in this article that's coming out is um, a three-point process for giving feedback. And the three points are the intro, the behavior, and the tossback. So the intro, behavior, and tossback. Mm -hmm. The intro is something like, help me understand what just occurred. Or the intro could be, I'm not sure you're aware of this. Or the intro could be, I was offended by a comment that you made at this meeting. So those are intros. Mm -hmm. And you have to tenor that to the context of the situation. The second is the behavior. And I help clients understand you got to make sure you identify concrete behaviors and not what your own assumptions are about this. So some concrete behaviors could be, I just saw you roll your eyes at me. Some specific example, something specific, yeah, not vague. Right, not vague. And not, so I just saw you, saw you roll your eyes when I spoke versus you just shamed me at a meeting. That's interpretive. So I just saw, saw you roll your eyes at me. Or another behavior is the last few times we had a team meeting, you raised your voice at me in front of others. Just concrete behaviors. Another example is you just said, I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, so those are the, that's the second piece, behavior. The third is the toss back. Um, after you've talked with them, you say, can we set up a time to talk about this? Mm. 
or is everything okay? Or I would appreciate having an opportunity to talk with you about this. Is this a good time? So there are ways to structure the conversation, peer-to-peer, leader-to-peer, peer-to-leader. And I, and I have a whole section on that in, in this uh, latest article coming out. Yeah, and by the way, I just want to point out, because as you're talking about that, I'm, I'm actually looking at the article while we're, while we're having this conversation. Y- you also have a lot of frameworks in here. There's one for the uh, developing new team norms to honor the professional compact, you know, what we were talking about just a few minutes ago. It really is, this piece really is filled with um, useful ways to structure the conversation, actual dialogue to, to have with that person. So I, I really hope that folks will go to the show notes and, and yeah. download the piece. It's, let, me it's just share a, let me just share a nutshell on that, um, Cheryl. I'm really pleased you brought that up. The, uh, basically what a norm is, the unwritten rules about we, how we do things around here. No one's had to teach this to you. You sort of know these things. And this, the, I have a four-step process when I work with a team to help them develop new norms. The first is, what do we... Uh, what have we done or what have we said in the past that's um, not effective? So in this, I have a chart. One might be in this quote, you've got to be kidding. I can't believe the way he talked to the charge nurse. What an idiot. So that's the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we do or say now. So now in, in the next part of the matrix, the second piece is something like, quote, I know I've been part of these conversations in the past. I don't feel good about myself when I do this. Why not talk directly with him? That's the second piece. The third is, why should we change? We change our voice here because if we don't, it increases team divisiveness Mm -hmm. and the obstacles. There's an obstacle to overcome when you try to change a norm. The obstacle could be, you could be ostracized by not continuing the gossip. So I help teams understand those four perspectives and so that they're totally aware when they start changing the norms. And um, it's, a, it's a really an awareness generating kind of exercise. Yeah, well, it's excellent. And I think that the, um, the, having the specifics and the dialogue points in there, the conversation points um, is really key because we're talking about uh, saying things in a way that it's open-ended and also gets, it's respectful. Also, it's not, uh, like you said, it's not, hey, you, you made me feel like dirt in that meeting, or I don't like how you talk to me. You know, it's, it's not uh, overly direct. It gets things out in the open without being confrontational. That's the word I'm looking for. Right. You know, it's interesting that you say that it is, it's all about respectful engagement. And, And since this is about physicians, one of the things I help them understand is, I mean, they're worth their weight in gold. They have been educated they care for their patients. And one of the things is if they understand the impact of some of their behavior, they would understand that this impacts patient care probably more than they realize. So that's why this education piece and presenting some of the hard data about this to not come down on them, but to say, I'm sharing this with you. Now let's put a plan together. Excellent. Dr. Kuzi, what if the toxic person is your boss? <laughs> I the love heck? the question. That's the number one question I get. What if the toxic person is my boss? First of all, I can tell you what often happens uh, when someone has a boss. Almost 90 plus percent of the time, they have tried to give the boss feedback. It doesn't go well. And then they give up. They say, see, it's not going to go anywhere. 
And one of the strategies that I have found is to not go it alone. What often happens is other individuals typically have the same issue with this individual many times. Yep. And so subsequently I say, go to the boss uh, in mass. Will it appear that you're ganging up on the boss? Yes, it will. However, there's strength in numbers. Mm. And if you approach it the way I approached uh, earlier, how to give feedback, the intro, the behavior, and the toss back, and you do it respectfully rather than an attacking way, there's a significantly higher probability it will be successful if you go to the boss as, as a group. And the, one of the biggest fears is what if the boss fires me? I can tell you the boss is not going to fire five individuals right. or three individuals. So that's the best strategy. I have other strategies in the, um, in the article that are more system strategies, but that's the strategy that, that I found most successful for individuals to take. Okay. That's interesting. It's, it's a bit counterintuitive, but I completely see your point. Yeah. <laughs> now I see your point. So it's good. Um, okay. You're t we're talking about firing. Let's, let's stay on that topic because before the break, you talked about all kinds of things to mitigate, to, to improve the situation, et cetera. But when do you know that it actually is time to fire somebody? And how do you do that when it's a toxic individual that you've tried to work with? Well, first of all, two things. One is you need to look at, is there an exit at exodus of your good employees and you may actually not know that completely because many of these um, toxic individuals are clever chameleons mm. they kiss up to people with power you as the boss and knock down to people without power so one of the things that you do is you have to have your ear to the ground and make sure you're understanding the issues that are going on with the team that's the first okay and second this is you as, um, as the boss in terms of firing. Have you gone through the process of progressive discipline? If you have not gone through that, it is very difficult to fire someone, um, anyone, particularly a toxic individual. And interestingly, many times a toxic person is your highest performer. So by going through the process of progressive discipline, you will discover that they have actually violated most likely some of the organizational values. And it's much easier to fire someone that, um, that are not values driven in the organization. So those are the two strategies. Look at your own exodus of good employees. And secondly, have you yourself gone through this process of progressive discipline? Yeah. So you can't, you, you've, you have to have gone through that progressive discipline process. It can't just be, a, right. I've just had it with this person. They've got to go. It, there exactly. has to have been the process in place. That's, that's right. so true. Okay. So now let's say we've, you've gotten the poison out, so to speak. Um, somebody leaves or, or even um, you're able to get that professional compact together and things are changing and values are changing. What steps can leaders take to restore their department or the organization to kind of to civility and mutual respect mm -hmm. when they're basically when they're kind of coming back from the toxic employee, um, what steps can they take? Well, one of the major steps that you can take is to um, recognize that this individual is no longer there and to um, have actually gone and done team development related to this and work with the team and the leader of the team saying no more gossip about this individual who's no longer here. There's a process psychologically called secondary gain. And we get a lot of gain and reinforcement out of gossiping about someone, but it's counterproductive. 
So subsequently, one of the main things to do is not allow the individual to talk about the, um, the uh, individual anymore. And sometimes I do this thought-stopping process. I say, all right, for the next 15 minutes as a team, you can talk about this individual and hey, ain't it awful. But after this, you all have to have a compact, no more, because it will divide the team. It's, it's counterproductive. That's so interesting. It's like a big group vent session. It is. Or something. It is. And, and then that's it. Get it out of your system because we're moving on. Yep. That's excellent. Um, this has been such an enlightening conversation. I love all of your ideas and strategies. What final advice do you have to our physician leader listeners who are dealing with, with a toxic uh, person in, at work? Final advice is a proactive strategy. Try to avoid hiring these individuals. And one of, the, one of the key ways to do this is no hypothetical questions. Mm. For example, what would you do? How should you do it? There's a high lie factor when you ask those kinds of questions. And people will say, you know, this is what I would do. And they're lying through it when actually they wouldn't do it. So no hypothetical questions. And the second is what I call the recruiting cue sheet. When you're hiring someone, a physician, a nurse, etc., think about the individuals who are not part of the hiring team. Who have an opportunity to interact with that individual. Maybe it's a receptionist, a driver, a maintenance person, the cafeteria person. Go to them ahead of time mm -hmm. and say something like, you may or may not have an opportunity to interact with this individual. But if you do, here are three questions. Did the person engage you in conversation? Did the person look like they lived out our values? Did the person seem like someone you would like to work with? And after the interview, um, and after they're gone, I'm going to come back and collect the data you will find some very surprising things because people are on their best behavior with um, interviewers, but not necessarily with people who, not necessarily on their best behavior with individuals who they perceive don't have power. And we know many of these people actually do have power. So those would be my final um, closing comments. And one additional one, don't try to do everything, baby steps, one step at a time. Awareness is the first step. That Wise words and great advice. Dr. Mitchell Cousy, thank you so much for joining us on Sound Practice today for uh, this really important conversation about toxic employees. My pleasure, Cheryl. You're a great interviewer, and I really enjoyed chatting with you about this. Mike, this topic was fascinating to me, and I really enjoyed this uh, interview, that my discussion with Dr. Cousy. He was so fun and high energy, um, and I think his leadership experience and research make his suggestions just spot on. Oh, absolutely. Great interview. I hope folks check the show notes for the article in the PLJ, Six Intentional Ways to Build Teams of Everyday Civility. It's a good article. Yeah, I hope they do. And his book, Why I Don't Work Here Anymore, is available on Amazon. We put a link in the show notes to make it easy to find. And sadly, Mike, We've come to the end. We've, we're wrapping up this episode of Sound Practice. As my dad always said, that's all she wrote. Well, the good news for you and me, Tothi, and hopefully our listeners, is that we'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Yes, we release one every other Wednesday. And while our listeners are waiting, hopefully with bated breath, I might add, for our next episode, they can rate us on Apple, Google, or wherever they get their podcasts. That they can. And they can refer us to a colleague if they like the show. Sure can. And if anyone would like to send us feedback, good or bad, we would certainly love to hear from you. 
So send us a note. Email us at feedback at soundpracticepodcast.com. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, that man Robin, Red Book of Power.